This is a story set in the Wild West of Kansas in the early 1900s. The story centers around a woman named Ruby, who is living a mostly quiet and mostly lawful life. When out of the blue, her past comes hustling into town and takes her and us on a journey filled with missteps and mayhem. This picture actually was one of the inspirations for the book. That's author K.T. Blakemore. She's holding up a picture of two saloon dance hall girls. I think this was the very first image of the dance hall girls that I found. And I said, those are my two girls. And then they ended up looking like this. The second picture is of the same women dressed differently. Two women with guns and hats and ready to hit the road as outlaws. We're talking about the wild-willed Women of the West series with author K.T. Blakemore on this Desideratum. A Desideratum is something you desire as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, celebrating storytelling as essential with my author and narrator friends. Before we dive in, I want to share some exciting news. This episode is being sponsored by Dreamscape Media. Dreamscape is an independent, award-winning audiobook publisher. They produce a wide range of titles from motivational self-help to suspenseful mysteries. I love that their goal is to provide the best, most high-quality audiobooks to listeners everywhere. And I hope you'll connect with them. Visit them at dreamscapepublishing.com where you can sign up for a weekly newsletter that has audiobook deals and updates on their regular audiobook giveaways. You can also connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. I'll put all their links in the show notes. Okay, back to the story. I dig through a lot on Google Images to try and find old um, daguerreotypes or tintypes or any of those sorts of pictures. So I love having images around of things. I'm big on images and I'm big on maps. So that that will literally dictate where they go. So I have a map from the Good Time Girls where I write down and I draw where I think they're at as they take these trains and then run all over the country. But then I have to go to Google Maps and say, how long did it take to do that on foot versus on horse? So on horse, you can do using a bicycle If you use the bicycle image, that will give you about the speed of a horse. I love that use of technology. That's really clever. So then you have to match a a modern map with a historical map because so much has changed. Particularly like in the second book, I have a 1907 map of that part of, of Colorado. Most of those towns do not exist anymore. The only railroad through there was the the Santa Fe. And it, you know, was much north of where I'm putting them. Ruby doesn't like this, of course, because trains are her go-to calming thing. That was one of my notes about Ruby, was how she's memorized train schedules. And um, it is, I like that you just said it was a calming effect on her, that it's something that she does to be in control. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because so much is out of their control. Yeah in that time period and as women. Exactly. She's very, um, she's very resourceful and, and you don't reveal everything about them 
we don't ever see like a full, full picture. You're not, you're not revealing everything all at once. I like the way we learn about these women gradually. Um, when I first started reading, I wondered though, who, who came to you first? Did, because this feels very much like Ruby's story, but I wondered who, who was your first sort of like, oh, this is a woman I want to write about. Was it Pip or was it Ruby? Is it someone else? It was Ruby, but she wasn't Ruby when I first thought of it. I was really interested in writing about Pearl Hart, who was a the last female stage robber. There's only been two. And she did this bang up, horrid job of it, <laughs> robbed one stage, messed up. She she literally, she's a tiny little spitfire of a woman. And she robbed a stage outside of Globe, Arizona, because she needed to get home. And she felt really bad because everybody needed to eat lunch. So she gave everybody back a dollar. <laughs> right. And then she just apologized to the person, people. And then she and Joe Boot, who was her accomplice in this, ran, ran off on their horses and uh, got caught because they got lost in the Arizona mountains. So then she goes to trial in Florence, as does he. And she is a drama queen. And she just starts saying things like, I do not live under the rights of men as I have no right to vote. So then all the suffragists are like, we love you for a heart. And they all come to court. And so she's crying and going on. And the men are like, oh, you're really cute. She's like, I didn't do anything. I just tried to get home to my sick mother. The jury goes, oh my gosh, you need to get home to your sick mother. Acquitted. And so the judge is furious about this. And he slams the gavel. And then he's like, well, I'm arresting you for taking the gun from the driver because it was federal property just to get her in. And so she got four years in prison and Joe Boot got 30. So I love how, how animated you are telling the story. And that, that part of it is that you found historically. Like I think it's it's cool that you latched onto all of those truths and then wove them into these people, uh, these fictional characters. As I was writing it though, I went to a workshop. I, I, I was in a weekly workshop, writing workshop and one of the prompts and this whole saloon and dance hall girls came out in the prompt that I wrote. And I was like, well, I can put these together. And I wasn't really looking at writing Pearl Heart as Pearl Heart is the mythology and the legend. I wanted to write about after she'd left, she drops off the face of the earth. There's nothing about her after a certain point. So I'm like, well, what happened in that time? And what happened in the space between going to prison? And, you know, and I was like, well, let me see if I can write about those. So that was sort of the beginning of writing it, plus looking at this dance hall, which is where Pip showed up. And as I kept writing, Pearl morphed into Ruby because Ruby has her own voice and she has her own life. And I said, you know, I don't need to be tied down by Pearl Hart. I can just have my own character. And that was very freeing. Yeah, very freeing. She references another really like famous or someone that even more people would recognize. She references Annie Oakley, but in a way that I thought was very unexpected. She talks about how Annie Oakley and Buffalo Bill, you know, made her long for the West, but it's this version of the West that does not exist. No. And so it's the reality of the place is, um, there's not one place to land that was soft. So 
I thought that was another clever way to weave in someone that we would recognize from history. Yeah, that was interesting that Buffalo Bill and Annie Oakley were very popular at the exhibition in 1893. And they had a whole group of Apaches who played the Indians, the cowboys and Indians, and they'd shoot their guns and the arrows are going on and off. And then Annie would come in standing on her galloping horse, shooting a gun. It was just like this crazy wild event that made people love the West. And then they got there and went, oh my God, this place is brutal. (laughs) Okay, let's pause right here. KT just described a woman trick riding on a horse, a real Annie Oakley show that inspired her writing. So let's listen to one of those scenes. This is from The Good Time Girls by KT Blakemore. Read by me. She gave a wave from the far side of the ring, then patted Big Henry's neck and smoothed a strop of his mane. Take a look at this move, she shouted and healed Big Henry. As he cantered by, she placed a hand on each side of his withers, scooted her feet up his back, then pushed herself into a handstand. This was a wondrous feat, and other people had gathered around the ring to watch and whoop. She went one dangerous level further, lifting one arm out straight to the side and dropped her legs into midair splits. The hair razor, one of her trademark moves, particularly as it let her legs show in their bare glory. I clapped and jumped on the rail to cheer her on. Someone bumped my shoulder. I looked around to see Verna climbing to sit on the rail. She gave me a nod, then settled her hands to her legs and watched as Pip moved into the scissor. Even old Pasco smacked his hat to the dirt at its magnificence. Look at that, I backhanded Verna's arm, riding around and showing off for nothing, Verna said, her eyes following Pip. It's a lot of show and effort, but... It's still round and round, never getting anywhere at all. Just, she made a tiny circle with her finger, like water going down a drain. Did you know water drains one direction to the east side of the Rockies and goes round the other way on the west? I asked. My guess is she did not know that fact, but hid it with a strange shrug. That is about as meaningful as dirt. It's an interesting fact, you do have to admit. And my guess is, you'll be curious next time you pull the toilet chain. I have no response to that. Without warning, Big Henry locked his front legs and slid to a dust-strewn stop. Pip spun over his head, landing on her back with a loud wallop. She lay still as a corpse, mouth open, eyes considering the heavens. Henry pawed a hoof at her side. He gave a soft nicker and lowered his head to touch his muzzle to her cheek. No one in the crowd moved. My heart clanged and dread thunked in my stomach, but I did not move either. Maybe we were all waiting for her to jump and take a bow, that this too was part of the act. Maybe it had a name like I Seen Death and Lived or The Dead Drop. Big Henry trotted to the fence, shook his head, and chewed on a sprig of grass. We all watched him. Then it seemed to dawn on us. We might need to pay some heed to the heap called Pip. 
Mateo, closest to her, slipped under the rail and jogged over. Verna jumped down, and I followed right on her skirts, then was lost in a bunch of shouts and, Hey, she alive? Get the doctor, came next. I bent low and shoved through to crouch next to her. Verna kneeled on the other side, waving her arms to keep the gawpers back. Leave her some room, you damn idiots. She looks awful pale, I said. It's just the breath knocked out and a conk on the head. Give her a minute. Upon hearing this, the small crowd lost interest, as crowds do, when the thrill of imminent tragedy and possible gore is denied them. There's something about the setting that you're creating. There's a matter-of-factness to it. Mm-hmm. But then it also, this is maybe going to be a weird reference, but I wrote down there was something very Wes Anderson. Do you know who I'm talking about, that filmmaker? There's something about the comedy of it, I think, is maybe what I'm drawing from. That these characters, that comedy helps the tragedy go down smoother. Yeah. You know, they're... They're lonely people. They're people grappling with sometimes really desperate or dire circumstances. But there's this levity that you spin through it. Um, where did that come from? Like, where? How did you? How did you land there? I don't know. They're just the, the way they look at the world and the way root. Well, both of the women look at the world kind of like that. They just automatically go to whatever the humor is in the situation or the oddity that makes them step away from, this is really terrible, I could get killed, to like, that guy is really weird. Let's go steal his car. (laughs) I I really don't know. I have an odd sense of humor. Well, I, I found it funny. So odd or not, there are many places in this book where I was like, oh, that was just such a funny take on it. That was such a great like lens of humor, of levity, um, I'm looking to see where I had notes about the, oh, oh, they're fleeing. At one point, they're fleeing something dangerous, which happens multiple times, but they're fleeing something dangerous and they escape on a donkey. That is a mule. Do not, do not make Theodore. That's, he would not like that. He's a mule. <laughs> oh, that's not true. A mule. There's a big distinction between a donkey and a mule. There's an extreme, extreme distinction between a donkey and a mule. <laughs> Huge distinction because he's galloping. Yeah, he this mule is, um, I don't know, he leads them to water. There's something like, I thought he was delightful. Like that was maybe one of my favorite parts of the book. I love Theodore. It's one of the times where they are just, there are dire circumstances. And yet um, the lens that you bring to it is, it's fun. It's really, it's fun. So did you feel like when you started writing, do you think like I'm writing a comedy? Well, it made me laugh. So even the first scene when I was writing, I was like, how funny and silly can I make this? And I had the whole, I actually had wrote the first time Pip comes out with her parasols and she can make them float in the air and she can land in different contortions and somehow catch them between her legs. Um, And it made me laugh and how they talked made me laugh. So I said, you know, this makes me, happy yeah and I was writing a lot of very dark books so I would pick this up off and on from the beginning of the uh the pandemic and lockdown 
and be like, so I'm writing all these dark, like gothic-y books. And I'm like, I, I need a break. So I just pick it up and write a scene of them. Where are they going? Okay, they're here. What happens? Mm. And it, it always, that was the point, was it made me really happy. And I said, this book is actually funny and it makes me laugh. So I hope other people get that out of it. There's a chance to laugh for a while, even if there are serious things, because, you know, humor is, is a really good way to show serious things. Um, and there's there's some very dark stuff in that book that I just sort of, you just do the lightest of touches of the line of like what happened to all the women in the paradise. And they talk about it right away. And it's not great. Yeah. Yes, that's true. That's one of the ways that comedy works is that there's an underpinning of serious to it. I love that it was a break for you because I, I that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, the other things that I've read that you've written, and even when we talked about um, the deception, you kind of even taught me about, oh, say this is a this is a hallmark of Gothic in that this is foreboding. This is how we create this emotion. So the emotion you worked at creating in those in that storytelling, it's it's totally different in this. And yet you are still playing with emotion. Yeah it's still so intrinsically part of your storytelling to me, but you're just like, you switched gears somehow. I switched gears. I'm really happy with it. I mean, it's super fun to write her and I'll, you know, I think of them, I think of the movie like, Oh brother, where are they? So they go on that journey and they see all these crazy people and, you know, just crazy situations. And it's like, that's what the book reminds me of. So it's like that mix of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And Thelma and Louise on their very serious journey. Yes, that's a great reference. And Wes Anderson, now you said that I will add Wes Anderson to my list. There was just something about the imagery I was starting to feel and the contrast, the people being, I think it was Verna. I probably was reading about Verna when I was like, something out of that style of storytelling. You know, she is, she is the, how did you explain her? She's, she's a cloud. She's the bouquet of doom. Yeah. Yeah. Just a great character. But then you also have, you have some literary references. These are not just rough around the edges, um, gritty, dirty Western. There are, um, there's a place where you reference um, Sancho Panza, the reference, there's a Don Quixote reference. A literary reference from these dance hall girls. I feel it's a book of the West. It has a Western feel, but it's not of the old West. So by 1893, or excuse me, 1898, when the Orinda, Arizona part takes place, that's still, Arizona was the Wild West for a very long time. So pretty much into the 20s. But the rest of it that takes place in, you know, the present in the book, that's such a different time. It's like there's cars now and telephones are coming and the rules aren't the same. You can't shoot a gun on the street. You know, so it's this very different time. And I, I really liked that change between where we went from that 1883 sort of Western to modern times. So it fits them because they don't fit into either time period. And they have to try and figure that out as they go along. Yeah, and there is, you're right, there's something very interesting about moments in history where things shift. Mm -hmm. Right, like those those are really 
fascinating places to seat a story because a shift is happening. Yeah. That you're finding shifts in the way community and society works, right? And then how these women adapt to that. Yeah, that's a really good point. One of the things that I think is is interesting, and I don't want to spoil anything about the men in her life, but Ruby makes this observation. She kind of puts men into categories. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? She puts men into categories. Yes. There's the the good, the weak, the there's four of them. I think the last one is dastardly or something like that. You definitely get your way to dastardly. You go from good to weak to mean to dastardly. Yes. Those to her are the four categories of men which she has experienced in life. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because it's a very, these are very empowered women. And yet you have these, you show how they interact with men. They only have so much control over that. And in order to have control, they have to make sacrifices. Right. Right. She's not able to be with her children all the time because she made decisions with men that she doesn't fit into that box of mother um, for that time frame. That's right. And, you know, that actually is her driving. Um, I think that's her driving motive throughout where the series is going of getting her kids back. One of the things that I love about Ruby is she's not necessarily a rule follower, but she has a very good moral compass. Like you allow her to be a good person without fitting into that rule follower book. Mm-hmm. Okay. I wanted to ask you about Ruby's other thing that I think is so fascinating throughout this is she can identify cigar brands by their smell. So I just wonder what kind of research went into that for you. No, I don't smoke cigars. I just looked up all the 19th century cigars. You know, I was in a play once called The Club. It was all women who played men at a men's club. It was a musical. And I remember I was understudying for it. So I took over the youngest character's part and one of it you had to stand in your tux and smoke cigars while you sang and nobody told me what to do with the cigar and at the time I smoked so I'm singing on stage with everybody with my cigar and I take a thing of cigar smoke like cigarette and I literally fainted off the back of the stage oh my god so no her her superpower of um, determining the cigar's by their smell is hers alone. Um, I felt like reading it, I felt like you were taking good care of your reader in that I was, there were moments that were dangerous for her, but I wasn't, I wasn't really scared. Like, I'm not sure how to explain the book to people that way, but I like, yes, there's some harrowing things, but I wasn't really worried. I just was reading to see what happened next. You know, I, I love that part of it. Well, thank you. That's that was actually that's actually a balancing act because I wrote scenes that I thought where I thought something needed to go and in reality would have gone. And they were so very dark that they would turn and shift the book out of that little balance it has of um, being kind of dangerous. But it's really like you just get on the you know, you, I wanted people to go. I want to be on the road with them even with all this. I hope you want to get on the road with the Good Time Girls and that you have as much fun as I did. 
You can find them and all the women KT writes on her website. You might also know her as Kim Taylor. So find all her storytelling at kimtaylorblakemore.com. A special thanks to our episode sponsor, Dreamscape Media. Dreamscape audio productions are riveting and beautiful. Entertainment for the entire family. And as always, thank you for listening.